0: The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, history tells us in the year 1623, the pilgrims at Plymouth, Massachusetts set apart a day of thanksgiving. In 1668, the same colony decreed, it was November 25th, it was the fourth day of the week that the Plymouth Colony Court set aside as a day of thanksgiving, and I was doing some reading on this in November of 1777, so as this nation was founded, that next November, the Continental Congress of this new nation issued its first national proclamation. Proclamation. It was for a day for solemn thanksgiving and praise, penitent confession of manifold sins, humble and earnest supplication that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ mercifully to forgive and graciously to afford his blessing on the government of these states. And then years after they continued these proclamations in 1779, and let's let's read this out loud, out loud together it was a day with gratitude above all for the gospel and prayer for public counsels his wisdom thankful prayer for our armed forces they would pray much divine grace for the church god's spirit on ministers of the gospel that he would bless and prosper education in the united states and spread christian knowledge to the world we still need to pray that amen and, and we need to see that, and we're going to see that in the book of Exodus, if you would be turning there. Because God says in Exodus chapter 9 that his purpose in judging Egypt and blessing his people is that his name would be proclaimed to all the earth. That's the big picture of the book of Exodus. And many of the pilgrims had that understanding as they came to America, and, and they would proclaim God's name to these lands, to the Native Americans, and this nation, as you know, would become a, a launching pad for, for missions all around the world to this day. I read an article by a writer who explains, American Puritans and pilgrims like Mather and Winthrop and Cotton and Bradford and many others placed Exodus at the center of their vision. Exodus was one of the most potent elements in the construction of what one historian called the Puritan origins of the American identity. The Puritans, it was interesting to read, they made Exodus an organizing principle of their experience. Close quote. And so look with me at Exodus 6, but we need to know the story that we're going to read about is a part of our story as God's people. And even... Deists and founding fathers who may not have been born again saw parallels with what we're reading here. They saw parallels between England and Egypt and their, God's people being let go to worship freely in a new world. And, and they often evoke these images. Thomas Paine wrote as the 1775 Lexington Massacre was made known, he said, quote, I rejected at that moment the hardened, sullen-tempered Pharaoh of England forever. You guys want me to use this mic here? Thank you. Amen. <laughs> a month after the 1776 Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Franklin drafted a sketch of a seal. So they're thinking, what's, what's the seal going to be for the United States and what he drafted was Moses standing on the shore of the sea. And there were other Exodus images with what he sketched. Thomas Jefferson proposed Israel after the Exodus seeking their promised land. The U.S. went a different direction. They chose a, a different seal. In fact, if you look on the back of a dollar bill, you'll see, you'll see a pyramid. You'll also see an, an eagle and and even those images which which may not be that exciting to you that even those images have some relation to the story that we're looking at God would describe his deliverance from the land of the of the the pyramids the land of Egypt as delivering them on eagles wings in Exodus chapter 19 that that was his image of of deliverance and bringing his people to their land God's all-seeing eye had seen the suffering of the Of the Israelites in Egypt making bricks and building Egypt's monuments. And God saw that and God brought his people out and he delivered them like on Egypt's, like on Israel, sorry, uh, like the wings of an eagle. Now I don't believe America and its church is a replacement of of Israel. But there's, there's a relevance with Israel for the story of God's people today. There's a continuity With the one people of God. And and this is a part of our spiritual ancestry. And the Psalms call us to come into his presence with thanksgiving. And they warn God's people not to have hard hearts like the Exodus. This isn't just something from the past. The worship of God's people warns us. There's warnings. There's encouragements in the story. And in this story, the Lord God, Yahweh, as he made himself known, he gives his declaration but Pharaoh replies, Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Is what he says, that I should obey him. In Exodus 7, he's going to find out. Look with me at Exodus 7, verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, this is the Hebrew name Yahweh when it's all capitals there. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. This is the first play. We'll just pause there for a moment. Chapter 8, there's going to be frogs, there's going to be gnats, there's going to be flies. But this is all we need to read how the Lord announces this. This is all so that Pharaoh will know who the true Lord Yahweh is. And so that Egypt will know. And so that Israel will know. And he'll say later, it's so that the world will know. Chapter 7, verse 5 says, the Egyptians are going to know through all this that I am Yahweh. And for God's people, this led to thanksgiving. Psalm 105 celebrates this. In fact, let's read this out loud together. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh. He sent Moses, his servants, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He brought out Israel. Egypt was glad when they departed. So Israel was to give thanks for this, but Egypt is going to be giving thanks when they finally leave. They're going to be giving thanks as well. And some of them are going to later join the worshipers. In Exodus 15, they're going to be giving thanks and praising God. Exodus 14 says, or 12 says, that there was a mixed multitude that also came with them. Some of the Egyptians and some from other nations joined the worshipers of God. And as the worshipers of God, we're called to give thanks. This is where this is all going. Give thanks for God's sovereignty and supremacy. I think that's the big idea of what God's showing and putting on display about his name, his nature, his sovereignty, and his supremacy. Over all, over rulers and evil will be the first section we see. And then over life and death. And then over the natural and the supernatural. But we're reminded the hero of this story is not Moses. And it's not Aaron. This is not about their power. It said earlier in this chapter, they were over 80 years old, both of them. And don't miss this they had a staff with them because they needed a staff. They needed a staff to help them walk and, and maybe to hold themselves up at times. But it's this staff that, that's going to show. This is not about a mighty man. This is about an almighty God who can take this staff and in, who, who's in his hand is, is in control of everything, including the king who thinks he's in control in Egypt. He has a supreme hand overall. And he's going to use this walking stick to change into a snake. And he's going to use that same piece of wood to change the Nile, the the very heartbeat of their country. He's going to turn it all into blood. And he's also in the process changing the complaining Moses from the last chapter into courageous Moses in this chapter now, who stands before the king and tells him, you have not obeyed. There's judgment coming on you. But in verse 11, the evil ruler of Egypt tries to, tries to duplicate what God's done and maybe to deceive or maybe to even try demonic power. But there's, there's actual explanations as to ways that, and it's still done to this day, I understand, in some of the, the Muslim world and in countries like this, they had ways that they could paralyze or hypnotize snakes, whether asps or cobras, putting pressure to a certain part of the neck, and they became rigid and, and from a distance they looked like sticks temporarily uh, they, they still do this in certain parts of the world and snake charmers and then you you have what looks like a, a staff and then you throw it down and it wakes up and it begins to move around but what they couldn't do they couldn't take that snake by the tail and pick it up and it becomes an actual piece of wood like Moses and what God is showing in this is his supremacy and his sovereignty over Pharaoh who did have power, but but God controls rulers and, and God controls even evil. Even if there's evil at work here, it's all in his hand. And the Bible will later say God holds even the heart of a king in his hand and he can turn it whichever way he wants, very easily. And even the evil one, the ruler of demons, Satan, is under control by God as well. Martin Luther called him God's Devil. In other words, he's, he has to submit to God. In fact, in Job, he has to come ask permission for what he can do with Job. Satan had to come to Jesus to ask him to, to sift Peter like wheat. The Lord is in control. And in verse 10, the word for God's staff is a word for a greater serpent than the serpents that Egypt threw down. The Hebrew word is tanin. This was used in other places for a great sea serpent. But these magicians had these snakes. And notice in verse 12, God's serpent doesn't just kill their snakes. He eats them. He doesn't just kill them. He eats them. I can't help but think of Pac-Man gobbling up those enemy characters as they're trying to run. And I can still hear the Atari sound effects. But he's, he's, he's gobbling them up. And, and it's, it's, it's not just that he's defeating them. He's devouring them. And they're gone. They're they're non-existent. They're not just dead. They're they're not there. You can't even see them anymore. There's not a trace. There's not a a crumb, if you will, left. They're gone. What they threw down is no longer there. This great serpent swallowed them up. That's the word. This is the absolute supremacy of God in victory. And the point is that, that he is the only God who's Whose power none can contend, as the song says. Whose name and praise will never end. He's unshakable. He's unstoppable. That's what you are. In the good times and bad, you are on your throne. You are God alone. That's the point. God's supremacy, which is another way to say his superiority, he's preeminent. He's over and above all is what supremacy means. He's matchless. He's unrivaled. He's undefeated and undefeatable. He's unbeatable. And this is what Israel needed to see. This is what Egypt needed to see. And this is what we need to see too. Because we see evil rising in our land. We see people in power that are very concerning to us. And and that do have evil and hardness in their hearts. We have many people who want to flee our state's governor. But no matter where you go, he might become president. Who knows what... Is going to happen yet, but you can't get away from, from evil and rulers. What we need to understand is whoever or whatever America elects or did not elect this past month, there is an unelected king who is always in charge and is working and able to work and overrule evil even to his purposes. And he is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, even in California. He is overruling and working in all things. He is the supreme God over the supreme court. And no matter what seats changed or did not change or aren't yet decided in our government, we have an unchanging God who is always seated on his throne. The House and the Senate is not controlled by either party. Thankfully, ultimately, there is a sovereign and good God who is in control. He doesn't approve of evil. But he can use what man intends for evil for his good intent. That's what Moses wrote earlier in Genesis 50, verse 20, on the lips of Joseph. And so this is, a, this is something we need to hear. And we need to not fear evil if the Lord is with me, as David would later say. And this is a truth, God being supreme, that as I read through several other Thanksgiving proclamations, our, our U.S. Congress often spoke of God as supreme. Just some examples from the 1780s. 1783 and 84 called him the the supreme ruler of all human events and the supreme ruler of the universe. And another one, the supreme disposer of all events. It is the duty of all to thankfully acknowledge him. We all need to be thankful and we need to acknowledge there is a supreme God who is supremely at work and supremely ruling and governing and disposing all things to his ends. We need to see that. We need to be thankful for that. Uh, One of them even spoke from, from our Congress declarations of adoring God's superintending providence, which is another way to say his sovereignty. We need to adore this. We need to thank God for this truth. Charles Spurgeon called sovereign providence the soft pillow that we can rest our head on at night, no matter what else is going on, to know that our Father is good, that he is there, that he is in charge. John Piper said this, I love to sweeten my mouth with the supremacy of God before I go to sleep. That's language from the Psalms, taste and see. The Lord see and savor his supremacy. It's a good thing to think about before we go to sleep. We need to give thanks for God's sovereignty and supremacy over all, and in particular, rulers and evil. Because verse 2 is, is really a preview of the plagues that are going to overwhelm Pharaoh. In fact, the, the imagery of the swallowing is actually a picture of what's going to happen to his whole army. Uh, the Red Sea is going to swallow his army. And it's going to be the same verb that Moses is going to use for how the, those serpents were swallowed up. And then later, the, the Egyptian chariots... Their riders are going to be swallowed up, same verb, by the Red Sea. Moses chooses this verb to show this is a preview of coming attractions. This is a preview of judgment for those who remain hard-hearted. And swallowed is the verb that Israel, they're going to sing about how God swallowed up their enemies in death. And so this staff swallowing the magician's staffs turned to serpents. This is a picture of of how God, you might say, has his enemies for lunch. This is a showdown, but he's showing him through this, showing Pharaoh, this is how you are going to go down. They had these great pyramids. They had this great empire. But they need to see that only God is great. And God is greater than what they thought. So their snakes don't just bite the dust. Their snakes get eaten up. And the point is, there is no one and nothing that can compete with the supreme God who is over the gods of Egypt. God is king over earthly kings. And there is no challenger, and there is no challenge too big for him. In fact, there is no competition, and this is going to be a no contest, this battle, with Pharaoh. We need to thank God for his sovereignty and supremacy over rulers and evil. Because there was a lot of evil happening in chapter 1, the... baby-killing plans of Pharaoh. His his infant-killing plan has chilling parallels, as we've seen before, to the 21st century rulers and the the culture of killing babies as well to this day. The Bible says, Woe to those who call evil good. To those who would take something evil, killing a a little child and call that good. Call that a, a right to be defended. So whether it's babies thrown in the ancient Nile or Unborn babies thrown in a modern abortion clinic's trash can. God will judge. And God can rescue. And that's what we're going to see. That's part of the message of Exodus 7 that we'll see in this next section. Because the river where Pharaoh killed babies, God is going to turn it to blood. Which shows his judgment. God is also going to rescue Israel through the water. And this is the beginning of his rescue. This is the first plague. And this is a classic epic battle that's rooted back in Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen, where there was a promise that there would be this enmity, this struggle between the the serpent and his people and and the the woman and her seed to, to come, her people, and ultimately there would be one who would come born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. So this battle isn't just against flesh and blood. There's spiritual warfare here. There's spiritual forces being reckoned with. The serpent that deceived Eve also deceived Egypt. And they were deep in occult, black magic, and satanic religion. You can read about it. It's actually not very edifying to read about, but the serpent, many of you have seen images of the serpent that was on the crown of the pharaoh. In fact. Just so you can see some of the images. Here's King Tut, not the king of the pharaoh, but his serpent crown, Uraeus. Here's some other pharaohs from different eras, but you have this common, this this serpent. It's often a, a raised cobra or some sort of a serpent ready to strike. And it, it's it was like their visible symbol right above their head of their of their power to strike down their enemies. And there's all kinds from all the different eras. Sometimes they're even holding serpents near their face as well in their staffs. And here's a, a statue of, of Ramses the, the second, And the serpent head with what survived there is actually partially crushed, ironically, even in the statue that survives. But God is showing he's going to strike Pharaoh. He's going to show his superior power, and he's going to start with the very symbol of Pharaoh's power. He's going to start with where they felt strong to show that they are weak. You know, Sometimes people are, in some of the Greek God stories, they're trying to find the weakness of their enemy, you know, the Achilles heel, or to find some little weakness. That's not how God does it. God goes after their strength, where they think they're strong, and he crushes them there. And that's what he's doing here. He's showing his real supremacy. This symbolized supremacy, but this is real supremacy. And even the serpent is devoured. There is eaten up in, on the on the ground. There is a picture of how God is going to destroy and devour and make non-existent and utterly irrelevant all of his enemies. There's going to be a head-crushing defeat. For Satan in the future. Romans sixteen twenty says to Christians God will soon crush Satan under your feet. That defeat is coming so we need to give thanks for God's sovereignty and supremacy that he is over rulers and evil and that he is also number two over life and death. Verse 17 by this you shall know that I am the Lord or I am Yahweh Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood, and the fish in the Nile shall die. And he's speaking this to Pharaoh, the one who said, Who is this Yahweh? Who is this Lord that I should obey him? He knows now. He's going to know now who he is. And, and even the, very, the staff was another symbol. This is all intentional. The staff of, of Pharaoh was another symbol of, of his sovereignty and supremacy. It was this beautiful, golden, sometimes in the shape of a snake. Uh, in his case, it was a symbolic thing, not something he needed to walk because he was old. His staff was showing his power. It was a symbol of his mighty rod to strike enemies. But God's staff shows that his supremacy, his sovereignty is actually real. It's not just a symbol. And remember the context earlier, it was... In the Nile River, where the king of Egypt had ordered all of the Jewish babies to be killed and to be thrown into the Nile River. And so on the shores and the bank of the Nile, there were babies being thrown. And this is the very place also, as you know the story, on the bank of this river, where Moses, the guy who's, in, who's writing this and who's in the scene confronting Pharaoh now, he was rescued as a little baby in a basket on the bank of the Nile, and it was by the Pharaoh's own household. It was by his own daughter who brings him into his house and so this is, this is all going full circle back to what he had been doing with the, the little ones who were precious to the Lord who he was snuffing out their lives now. He's coming and it's on this same going back to the scene of the crime if you will. He's going back to the bank of the Nile and he meets the Pharaoh and the language here is stand before him. This is a defiant showdown and stand, confront Pharaoh. And, and tell him that judgment is coming. And it was also in the morning that, like Pharaoh comes in the morning. He, his, the daughter of Pharaoh, had, some 80 years earlier, had come to the water. This is a different Pharaoh now. But, but God is, as one writer says, Moses will smite the water that could have become red with his own blood earlier. His stroke turns it into a sign of death and destruction and guilt for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And Moses wrote the first five books in, in our Bible. And in, in chapter 4, the, the blood of, of an innocent one, Abel, who was slain. God said, the, the blood of, of Abel is crying out to me from the ground. The blood of those who are slain unjustly, who are murdered. That blood cries out for justice. It cries out to God. God had been hearing cries for justice for the, from little ones, for those who were slain And cries of of mothers and and the people, it says their cries in chapter 2 came up to God. He heard those cries. And now he's going to bring justice. Moses would later write, it's blood by reason of the life that is required in God's law for sacrifice and for substitution. It's required for justice. Where sin deserves death. And, And the Nile was also seen as their lifeblood it was the the lifeline literally that the whole nation depended on the Nile River even to this day it's 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 something they worshipped and it's possible that Pharaoh was going in the morning and, and God tells Moses to go then because he was going to worship the Nile they would sing to the Nile we sang hymns here today there's a hymn to the Nile you want to hear how it goes I don't know the tune, but bringer. this is what they sing to the river. Bringer of food, creator of all good, Lord of majesty, sweet of fragrance. They would sing. Pharaoh may have been singing that hymn to the Nile this morning. When this guy comes again with the staff to tell him about the true Lord of majesty, the true creator of all, who's bringing the Nile's food to an end that they were singing about. And this is not good for them. And that sweet fragrance that they sang to the Nile about is going to stink. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. Don't, don't try to listen to some explanation as to how water can turn a little bit different color he struck it and as he struck it all the water in the Nile turned into blood and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank it stank that sweet fragrance it stank and all the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt Okay can you imagine this and it's not just in the river Verse 19 says it was in their ponds, it was in their pools, it was even in their personal containers of water in their homes, whether wood or stone or any sort of water container. They, wow, that water's terrible. We've got to go get some water from home. They come home, they open up the pot, and in the pot it's turned to blood as well. All over the land. There's no EID. And there's no water bottles to buy. But even if you, there was a store selling water bottles, it would all be turned to blood there as well. To get water to drink, Egypt had to dig. They had to dig like slaves if they're going to have water to drink. See what God's doing? Look at verse 24. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full Days passed, And this is hard to imagine. Some of you can't imagine, you know, not having Wi-Fi for a few days. Try not having water for a week. And this would mean death. Unless they got on their knees, literally, and had to go down in the mud, down by the river, and start digging And God allowed the water that they would have to dig for to be not blood. But the water in the river over there was blood. While they're down there, do they pray? Do they look up to Yahweh for deliverance? Not yet. But don't miss what God's doing here. Don't miss the point of his supremacy over life and death. And don't miss the irony Egypt had forced Israel, to do their manual labor. Labor. Now they're being forced, Egypt is being forced to manual labor. God is beginning to bring this mighty nation to its knees. But He's just getting warmed up. There's a lot more to come, but this is even this, the imagery and the symbolism and all the details God is going right after what they trusted in, where their heart was, where they thought they were invincible and what made them set apart from anyone else. This is a warning shot across the bow for any boat that was on the Nile as it turns to blood. God is calling and warning about judgment to come. Blood signified judgment. And this first plague previews the last plague where God is going to shed The blood of the sons of Egypt. There's going to be blood running all over the place at the end. It's going to be a bloodbath. And blood is also at the same time going to be how God delivers his people Israel. Right? It would be blood. It would be the blood of a Passover lamb. The blood of a substitute that would be slain to, to cover them, to provide. It would be blood that also provided the way of escape. There's judgment and there's salvation at the same time. And it's going to be by water that God is going to judge the army of Egypt. They're all going to drown in the Red Sea. Life and death are in God's hands. And judgment comes when man tries to take that into his own hands. What only belongs to God. Vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. And he will repay America or any other nation that does injustice. He sees the culture of death. And in verse 22, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Not the same in terms of scale, because the river's already red. They can't duplicate that, but apparently turning some water that they dug for, apparently. And Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. So they did this either by sorcery or by sleight of hand. The text doesn't tell us. Apparently some water they've, they've dug for. They turn at least some sample of water to at least look like blood to Pharaoh. But that didn't solve the issue. That didn't show superiority. Pharaoh just has more Fluid that he can't drink now. I mean, if they really had power, they would reverse the curse. They would turn the water, the the blood back into water, but they can't do that. They don't have power like God. If God's power wasn't superior, they could reverse God's work, but they can't, and that's part of the point. God alone is supreme. Moses and Aaron must have been thankful that God has real power over life and death. You can imagine how thankful Moses and Aaron must be at this point because the people didn't listen to them initially Pharaoh didn't listen to them but now God is making the world know starting with them praise the Lord he is sovereign over all of life to the day we die and he can't be overruled isn't that good news so be thankful for that and then thirdly and finally be thankful God is sovereign and supreme over the natural and supernatural. Look at chapter 8 now. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you, he says to Pharaoh, and on your people and on all your servants. So these frogs are going to be coming up and they're going to be jumping on Pharaoh himself in his bed. I mean, it's it's almost humorous. He can't get away from him. He tries to go to his bedroom, and there he pulls the sheet back, and they're all over the place. All of his servants, there's no one exempt from this. There's no mighty ruler of Egypt who is able to get away from these, not even Pharaoh himself. I mean, just again, can you you imagine this? And you go back to your house, and you open up your Stove, and there's a, a frog, and you open your cupboard, and there's there's toads in the Tupperware, or whatever you have. I mean, this is. I remember when I was in the the dorm in college, and I hear some guys screaming, and I go to the bathroom, and he's all concerned because there's this little spider in the sink. I'm like, I grew up in the Philippines. Spiders can get you know this big over there. I said, like, come on, but I, I've I've heard people screaming when they're they, they don't expect to see. Something there, and it's, it's, it's disturbing. Imagine endless, if you've ever heard frogs, they just don't stop. They just get ribbit, ribbit, and then you multiply it by the millions, apparently. These endless ribbits all over the place. And the end of verse 6 says, they covered the land. The land was covered. It's like you couldn't step, you couldn't hardly even see the ground because of all these frogs. And imagine the, the screens of people finding them and, and just all over the place. Imagine the slime. I mean, frogs are, are not pleasant to handle, to touch. I mean, this is just here a frog, there a frog, everywhere a frog, frog. The place is just hopping with frogs and it, it's, it's humorous to, to picture them just popping up all over the place. And it's not only humorous, it is humiliating to Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh was supposed to have supernatural power to keep the order in the land. People of Egypt are thinking, I thought this guy was supposed to have power to to prevent things like this. He's got, when we see him, he's got frogs jumping up on him. This is embarrassing. He is impotent before the omnipotent. it's, It's almost like Egypt's emperor has no clothes, if you know that story. He's got no way to stop all these croaks all around the land. And what's, what's even more ironic is that the frog was an animal that they worshipped and couldn't kill. So You couldn't kill the frogs. Here's what one scholar says. The frog was a number of sacred animals that might not be intentionally killed, and even their involuntary slaughter was often punishable by death. It was a serious offense to kill a single frog, and they've got millions all over their land they can't keep them out they can't kill them and the only thing the sorcerers can do is cause more to come look at verse 7 but the magicians did the same by their secret arts and they made frogs come up on the land of Egypt it doesn't say they created frogs I don't think they could have the power to do that but what they did is they caused more frogs to come up on the land great more frogs just what I need What what Pharaoh really needed, what Egypt really needed, was someone who actually had power to make those frogs go away, and that's what they cannot do. They can't reverse God's work. And so when you think of Pharaoh's sorcerers versus versus God, don't don't think this is like Sauron versus Gandalf, and it's kind of a, a close battle. This is like a squirt gun against the great wall is more what it's like. You can just keep squirting. It's not doing anything. God is almighty and he's unaffected by anything Egypt might do. Egypt has no power to take any of this away. And what's interesting is Pharaoh now knows it. And the way we know it is he doesn't call and summon his magicians to ask them to do some spell to get all these frogs out of here. He doesn't ask his magicians for help because he knows they can't help him with this. Look at verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. He's using the the covenant name of the Lord now. Will Will you plead with Yahweh? I'll let your people go and worship Yahweh. If you can just... Just get rid of these frogs. Some of the translations say he begged to pray or to entreat Yahweh. And Moses basically replies to him, I'll, I'll give you the honor. You know, you can call the shot. I'll let you call the day. Tell me when. Say when. For you and your servants and your people, that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, this is Pharaoh's reply, Tomorrow. You might wonder, why not now? Well, it could be that Pharaoh's maybe still secretly, he wants to act like he's in charge. Like he's in, that could be one thing, but could be he's hoping maybe this is something that will resolve itself and it will happen today and not tomorrow so that I won't lose face. But it's too late for that. And then verse 10. Moses said, be it as you say. So that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. That's, that's the point here. So you would know there's no one and nothing like the true God. Pharaoh didn't have a prayer, literally. He, could, he couldn't even pray for himself. He doesn't pray to God. He asks for prayer. He needs someone else to pray for him. He has to reach out with a prayer request. He's he's got to beg someone else to plead with God for him. He asked for prayer to the only God who has the power to do anything with this, the only true God, the incomparable God. He's not becoming a believer in this God yet. This could be more superstition than anything else. He's thinking this is one of the gods, but he's going to know there is no God like this God. He is supreme. There's no one like him over the natural world and the the supernatural world, whatever false gods they had been trusting in before this. There's a note in Psalm 78, 45 that says, God sent frogs which destroyed them. He destroyed them with frogs. This isn't just about their, you know, a distraction for them, an annoyance. This was about their destruction. And so in humiliation now we've got Pharaoh Standing in the need of prayer. He's there. He's standing in the need of prayer for himself. He can't do anything. He calls the prayer line. He calls Moses and Aaron. Aaron. Got a prayer request for you guys. Can you please pray? One writer says Egypt's king knew that God had sent the frogs and that only God could take them away. By asking for their removal, he was admitting Yahweh's power over all creation. Pharaoh's prayer request even uses the word for supplication, making a humble entreaty. And Moses humbly prays for his enemy. He prays for his enemy. In verse 13, the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. There's more stank going on in Egypt now and earlier egypt or the israelites complained to moses you you've made us a stench in the nostrils of 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 pharaoh now there's a, there's going to be a much greater stench all around the land and it says when pharaoh verse 15 saw that there was a respite he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the lord had said Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. And the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is is the finger of God. Isn't that amazing? Whatever powers they thought they had, they confess this is God this time. This is God's superior power. They're not committing in faith to this God. They're not converting to Yahweh. But they're admitting they can't bring out a, a gnat. Not a single one. They can't swallow a serpent. Whatever deception or demonic miracle they try, God stops it. And all God has to do is lift his little finger. I love how Luther said of the devil, one little word shall fail him. That's all it takes. One writer sums up, the sorcerer's resources fail them, natural or supernatural. God's or magical powers forsake them, and the gnats were on them as well. These guys have the gnats attacking them. So next week, we'll look more at the Egyptian gods and how the true God is insulting them here. But we can already see the Egyptians see this is the finger of God. In other words, this is a real act of God. This is no natural disaster. This is a supernatural divine judgment. And if this is his finger is the implication, just wait till you see his mighty hand. Because he says, I'm going to bring my mighty hand. I'm going to show my strong arm. This is just his finger. There's there's more to come in the Exodus. We need to be thankful. This is how Psalm 136 applies this to thanksgiving. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, to him who alone does great wonders, who who brought Israel out from Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, who overthrew Pharaoh and his hosts. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. We're going to sing how our our heart should be filled with thankfulness to him who reigns above, whose wisdom is my perfect peace, and for believers whose every thought is love. For every day I have on earth is given by the king, so I will give my life, my all, my love to follow him. I hope that's your heart. I hope you're not hardening your heart. And, And... it's possible to say the right things about God and not submit to this God, not commit to this God like these Egyptians. Are you truly thankful? Are you truly humbled by grace? Maybe if you were honest, you'd say, what I want is relief from sin's consequences. I don't want repentance from it and all that means. Maybe you see God's power, but you don't submit to His Lordship in your life. Maybe you're, you just want to get rid of the inconveniences associated with sin. You don't want to get rid of your iniquity itself. You're in a dangerous place if that is you. If you're just bothered by the by the consequences and the, the smell, if you will, of, of sin, but not wanting to get rid of sin itself. If, if you ask for prayer, but you don't really do what God calls you to do, if, if you don't have a new heart that is committed to Christ, His judgment is coming. Unless you turn from your sin and trust and treasure Christ supremely. If you plead for mercy sincerely, he will do more than take away the suffering that, that plagues you. He'll take away your sin that is a stench to God. There is wonder-working power in His blood. His life and death saves. And if you can say, Jesus is the Lord who is my shepherd, and you can also say, His staff, it, what, comforts me. That staff becomes a comfort to His sheep. Think of Jesus who also met His people on Ashore, And he showed miracles to to provide fish for them miraculously. And and he provides all of our needs graciously. He he has power to change the substance of water into wine and to change hearts that were once hardened. He defeated the serpents on the cross. And like he devoured those enemies in the past, he rose again to defeat the last enemy, which is death. And the Bible says even death is swallowed up in victory. So whatever demons may have been behind Egypt's sorcerers when they said, this is the finger of God. This is what Jesus said in Luke 11. It is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. And so the kingdom of God is upon you. Jesus is sovereign and supreme over rulers and evil, over life and death, over the natural and supernatural. So give thanks to God. This is our our last verse. Colossians 1 says, We're to be giving thanks that Christ is over all creation, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. That's his sovereignty. And it says, So that in everything Christ might have the supremacy, the preeminence. And so let's be thankful. Let's be thankful, people, as we think of his sovereignty. And his supremacy. And let's seek to be a witness of these truths, to proclaim his name to others and to the ends of the world. Amen. Amen. Let's do that even this week. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the glorious gospel, we thank you for Christ and his power that is over all. I pray that you would help us, even this week, to be good witnesses to those who don't yet know that power in their life. And that we would all be more thankful for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.